This is my first time uh, speaking down here at Second Street, and I'm honored to have the opportunity and humbled uh, to speak before you, so thank you. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you this evening. But here we go. Right now, you and I are on a battlefield in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, about an hour down the road. There's muskets firing, there's smoke all around us, and all we hear is sounds of terror, pain, and anguish. We've been outflanked by the enemy to our left, but on our right, there's still plenty of our fellow soldiers standing. There will be no retreat today. You hear the faint sound of a coordinated drumbeat, and this drumbeat, it signifies a regrouping, a regathering that often takes place right before an offensive. But in order to know where we go to meet our fellow soldiers, where we'll regain access to our resources, things like cannon firepower that give us confidence, we need to locate our regimental flag. The flag of our regiment, it allows us and the rest of the scattered troops to create a visual rallying point on the battlefield. This rallying point is essential to our victory and our survival. Because on this war field, we can't hear the bugle calls. We can't hear the vocal commands of our commander. Regimental flags have strategic importance in battle. And hand-picked teams of soldiers, called the color bearers, often were the ones who would hold the flags. There was oftentimes also other soldiers who were picked to guard the color bearers because of their importance in the fight. See, being a color bearer was considered a mark of great distinction. It required a soldier of extraordinary bravery. You see, color bearers, they could not flee and retreat, because if they did, the rest of the regiment would follow. For this reason, color bearers were easily identified on the battlefield because of the flag and would oftentimes become targeted for infantry attacks. Due to this, the mortality rate, mortality rate of color bearers, excuse me, was often high. You see, the history of the Civil War has countless, countless lists of color bearers who have fallen in battle. And oftentimes, as they were carrying the flags, if they were, if they were shot or hit by the enemy, as the flag would fall, another armed member would run to the flag to grab it before it hit the ground. You see, because a fallen flag or a fallen banner in war signified defeat. But a flag hoisted, a flag raised in the air signified victory. So we just went back in time a little bit there for this reference to the Civil War. But you see, the color bearer, the flag, the banner, it still holds great significance for us Christians today. As we watch the news, as we look around on the internet, or as we walk through our local cities, we realize we are at war. According to some estimates, over 150,000 Christians and the growing are being killed year after year because of their faith. This is why having security and trust in the name of God for this week, in English, Jehovah Nissi, or as it would have been said in the Old Testament, Jehovah Nissi, which means the Lord is our banner, is of the utmost importance. The name Jehovah Nissi reveals to us the next characteristic about God that we're going to study today, and that is his everlasting, unchanging, 
all-encompassing victory over the enemy. But what this means for us Christians is, is at the exact point in time, and this is key, you have to get this, at the exact point in time that we put our faith in Christ, our identity has changed forever. We immediately took on the identity of a warrior within the regiment of Christ. And as a warrior within the regiment of Christ, we have victory over Satan, over the world, and over sin. You see, understanding this is critical because it allows us to walk confidently as if we have the cannons next to us into battle. When we walk into battle, we don't question if we're going to win. When we walk into battle, we know that we've already won. So my friends, my hope is for you today that you're going to leave here with a renewed confidence as Christians in the same promise that was given to Israel. And that's highlighted in Deuteronomy 23, which is, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. So today we're going to be examining the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. We're going to go to chapter 17, so if you could take open your Bibles or your, your iPads or whatever it is that you're following along with, and while you're doing that, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, Lord, and the victory that we have in him. Send your Spirit to be with me now, Lord, as you know that I am utterly utterly incapable of doing your word justice, Lord. Father, bless this sermon. Father, take it to the hearts of the men and women in this room and allow your spirit to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let me give you a little background on how we got to Exodus 17. First, it starts in Exodus 6 through 14, where Jehovah reveals his power. He exercises his salvation. And he establishes himself as a provider. First, he reveals his power when he takes the Nile and he turns it into blood. Then he exercises his salvation as the Israelites are gathered before the Red Sea and the Egyptians are pursuing and he takes the rod of Moses and splits the sea. Then he reveals his ability to be a provider as the Israelites are grumbling against Moses in the wilderness for food and drink. He provides manna, and he tells Moses to strike the rock with his rod, and water comes out so that they can drink. And then this brings us right to where we're at in today's passage in verse 17. Or chapter 17, excuse me. So let's take a look. 17.8. At Rephidim, which was considered a place of rest, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Okay, folks. For us to fully understand where I'm going to be driving at today, you have to understand who the Amalekites were as a people. So please, really try to lock in on this one. The Amalekites were the descendants of Amalek. I know, an impressive demonstration. Now. <laughs> no, but really, the Amalekites came from Amalek, who was the grandson of Esau, who was Jacob's twin brother. And we know that Esau was a man who despised the holy things of God. 
And he, at, at the end of uh, the story, he gives his birthright away. And God, for this reason, despised Esau because of his wickedness. In Malachi 1.3, it says, I hated Esau and laid his mountains, mountains and his heritage to waste for the dragons of the wilderness. They shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord had indignation forever. So as we continue through this passage and this message, keep in mind that the battle between Israel and the Amalekites, it is more than just your typical flesh and blood war. From as early on as Esau, Satan was trying to take out Jacob. He was trying to take out Israel. He was trying to take out the Jewish people, not just because he hates Jewish people, but because from the Jewish people would come the one and only Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the battle between the Israel, Israelites and the Amalekites is a symbolic representation of the everyday war that we go through as Christians between heaven and hell, sin, persecution, all the things that we're seeing on the news. Paul explains this in Ephesians 6.12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So take notice, by way of Satan and his legion of demons, by the world and by the flesh, the enemy has attempted to counterbalance what we know as the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Make no mistake, the enemy is relentlessly trying to ruin anything that is good with evil. So in today's fallen world, our enemy has become emboldened because many have been deceived. For Christians like us in the United States, often his, his attempts and his strategies are a little bit more subtle than what we're seeing in Iraq with ISIS sending notes to households telling them, either you flee or you will face certain death. Therefore, often for us first world Westerners, we go on living our lives unaware that the, that the enemy wants to take all of us out, each individually. But since the truth is that we're living in a world in which evil takes no breaks, and life demands vigilance, and we can't just go and take a spiritual vacation whenever we want, we must do as what Peter taught in 1 Peter 5.8, which is, be sober-minded and be watchful. As your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But in order for us to execute on this directive realistically, we have to kind of understand what are the enemy's tactics. So what I want to do is take a look in the scriptures here at three good examples of when the enemy is roaring around devouring. Our first example we already kind of touched on, and that's the example of tiredness. Esau was hunting. He was extremely tired and fatigued when he came home from a long day in the field. When he came home, the enemy got him. He convinced him to give up his birthright, the future of his, of his generations to follow. I don't know if any of you have watched the ESPN highlight reel, but Esau, come on, man. Really? But see, it's easy for us as well to give in to the pressure of a long work day, seek immediate gratification in things like 
people or food or drugs. See, Esau wanted to recall the bargain after he made it, but it was too late. So our next example I will consider a little bit more of one of those subtle tactics that we talked about. A little bit sly. You see, the next example of of when the, the enemy is really going to try to attack is during happiness. See, King Herod is a perfect illustration of this. He was having a birthday party and he was dancing with a beautiful woman and in the, the allurement of this dance and this enjoyment that he was having, he said to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom, it says in the book of Mark. Now, this kind of reminds me of this one time when I first met my wife, Erica, and we were on our first date out in the middle of the street, and there was a beautiful sunlit evening. Sunlit evening. <laughs> Moonlit evening. And I pulled her aside, and I began to salsa dance. <laughs> and in the allurement of my salsa dancing, she wanted to kiss me, and I said, hey, hold on here. Are you sure you want to do this? And she did. She kissed me, and the rest is history. And now this comes with a no return policy. <laughs> but seriously, Herod's mistake, his defenses being down, ended up costing John the Baptist his head. Because this is what she requested. And finally, the last tactic I want to take a look at real quickly here is the tactic of discouragement. And this is one I think that we all know a little too well. Peter. Peter was discouraged. Jesus had just been arrested. He was, he was walking in the night, and the enemy sent crowds to him to address him, to ask him, do you know this man? And what did Peter do? He denied him three times. See, it's important for us to recognize how we often act out of character and succumb to the pressure of the moment. When we do this, we give away more than we could ever recapture. At times, we give away parts of our identity in Christ. You see, Esau's tiredness, Herod's happiness, Peter's gloom, they're all good examples of how Temptation and pregnancy temptation can cause us to sin, and why we as God's people have to be alert and on watch. So remember, God's people watch for the enemy. Okay, on to the next step in the outline here, which is point two, which is God's people wage war against the enemy. Exodus 17:9 says, Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us. And go out, fight against Amalek. Now, although this verse seems rather direct to the point, there's still a few key items we need to unpack here. You see, when the attack came, this time Moses and the people were ready. Moses knew right away who he had trained up. He knew who to select to go out and face the Amalekite army. He selected Joshua. Did Joshua waste any time? No. He didn't waste any valuable time. He got right to it and went to battle. Think of how different this is compared to how they reacted when the Egyptians approached at the Red Sea. There, they went to Moses frantically, upset, and said, Moses, you brought us to sure death. What have you done? You see, 
during the initial deliverance of Israel, which is pretty similar to our initial salvation, God is and was alone the agent of change. Exodus says, stand still and see the salvation of Jehovah. However, now, since Israel has been saved and been delivered, God is including them in the fight. He's, he's taking these two experiences, first the encounter with the Egyptians, which was the salvation, and now the encounter with the Amalekites, which is that further deliverance. And he's creating a very clear illustration of what we see in Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 10. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. So there we are, the salvation, the battle against the Egyptians. Lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in so there we are. Now this new battle against the Amalekites. The lesson here is that we can't forget how we were saved in the first place. It wasn't by our own doing. And another lesson is for us serious believers here in the room, we have to understand that we now have a responsibility. Post-salvation. Which is we have to join an active duty in God's regiment. Fellow believer, it means that it's not our first rodeo anymore. We have to do as it says in the book of Jude, and as we learn, contend for the faith. Because at the end of our lives, we want to be able to say what Paul said in 2 Timothy, which is, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. See, it's also important for us to take a closer look at the other men that Joshua led in the battle. Because we know that Joshua was a man of great valor, a man of great strength. However, these other men, they were merely a makeshift army. They were herdsmen, carpenters, brickmakers. Worse yet, they likely didn't have sharp-edged swords to fight with. Remember, they just left captivity. All they had was what they picked up along the road along the way, rocks, sticks, scraps, other things to be able to defend themselves. See, my point here is that every single one of us in this room is without excuse. It doesn't matter how ill-equipped we may feel sometimes, or how ill-equipped the enemy may convince us that we are. Within the body, we all have a responsibility to active duty, and we have to use whatever has been given to us to go out and fight against the enemy. But let's continue to march forward here. We're on to point three, which is God's people work together against the enemy. So we're going to focus on the verse, pull it out, Exodus 17, 10 through 12. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill, while Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But when he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Moses' hands grew heavy, so they took a stone and they put it underneath him so that he could sit down. Then Aaron and Hur 
supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. You see, at this point, Moses gets it. He knows that we're not going to win this war under our own might. He remembers how the Israelites have won so far, which is purely through the hands of God. However, Moses is like us. He's a human. And although we know the right thing to do sometimes, although Moses knew the right thing to do, which was appeal to the Lord, he became physically exhausted. Because the battle had raged on longer than he expected. See, this happens to us often, doesn't it, Christians? We enter into this war where we, we have all this fire and this vigilance and we think, we're really going to take this one down. But as the battle rages on, as the real tests and trials get deeper, as the hard issues grow, as the real Amalekites continue to strike, before you know it, we become weary. And we allow emotions like doubt and frustration to weaken our position and weaken the confidence that we're taking to the fight. So don't do this insincerely or anything like that, but I really want to encourage you, maybe at the end during worship for the next uh, service, if, it's, if God puts it on your heart, put your hands up in the air during the song. And then I want you to try to keep your hands in the air for the entire song. And if you still feel good after that, which that would be very impressive, try it for two songs. And then think about what it was like for Moses at 80 plus years old with the staff in his hand all day. You see, the point here is, is that we are utterly weak and helpless on our own in battle without God. He is our only way to win. He is the one true banner. He is Jehovah Nassim. Whereas the book of Genesis tells us we overcome by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. So let's take a second as a congregation to think about who is our Moses here? Who's our Aaron? Who's our Her? Who's the word streaming into your mind right now, popping into your head? It may be a close friend. Maybe it's the leaders of our congregation. But the point here is, is that these folks that are going to the top of the hill and calling on the name of the Lord time after time for us, they get tired. And this, friends, this is where it really kicks in. You see, they're fighting the most lethal of Amalekites that are attacking the church in today's day and age. And on top of that, they and their families have their own individual battles with Amalek. In addition to this, as leaders of the church or as leaders within your own small groups, these folks have additional stature, position, and prominence, and people are paying attention. So what that means is persecution and sin and things like that are under attack on them regularly. So brothers and sisters, this is really where it comes into play for us to act.